You can turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. Friday morning I was sitting in here just kind of tying up loose ends with the sermon. And, uh, and it hit me really hard about the goodness of God and how oftentimes we miss um, his goodness as he pours it out into our hearts and into our lives. We miss it because it doesn't look like goodness. And so I was like, Corey, the song Goodness of God just started rolling through my head. And of course, you saw last week, Jasper getting up here was just moved in worship over the song that he, we had just sang and proclaimed together and how he had a hard time holding it together. And I don't know if any of you noticed, but he preached the entire sermon holding his Kleenex in his hand. Well, I said, so I'm like, Corey, goodness of God, I think I can get through that one. And then he shoehorns in at the head of that, the song um, that we sang just before this, How Good Is He? And that one I can't get through. So praise God that he did not permit Corey to put that as the song that led into the sermon. Because listen, as we focus on the goodness of God, we should be moved, moved so much to know that he cares so deeply for us. His love for us is so grand and so magnificent that he would even privilege us to be able to receive his goodness. 1 Peter chapter 2. This is the end of last week's sermon. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 2. Like newborn infants is what we should be before God. We are to long for the pure spiritual milk that we can find in Jesus Christ. That by it we would grow up into salvation. And verse 3 is it. What a, what a tremendous transition verse into the next five verses. If indeed you have tasted, if you indeed have tasted that the Lord is good. Simple question, have you tasted the goodness of God? And what does even the goodness of God look like? Because Peter is about to present to us two options You're either going to come to Jesus because you trust in him or you're going to respond to Jesus as his own people, Peter's own people, the Jews did. And they're going to reject him because he is not what they thought he would be. He is not who they wanted him to be. He's going to present us with two specific options. And I I will make this challenge to you. If you are challenged to receive and to see the goodness of God in your life, it will make it harder and harder and harder for you to come to him. And his plea to you is, come to me. Wendy and I were out in Sedona, Arizona last week, and, and uh, there was a moment where we were driving into Sedona, and behind us was a, was a magnificent rainbow, a reminder of God's promise to never destroy, destroy the earth like he had with the great flood all those years ago. And, uh, but in front of us was, were these red rocks and white rocks towering above us, the fullest expression of the flood and what God did to the earth. Seeing, reminded of the promise of his saving us from judgment that lays before us. And on our ride home, goodness of God, on our plane ride home, there's me in this seat, there's Wendy in this seat, and then there's this young woman sitting in this seat who, I don't know if you've ever flown before, but typically people, strangers, don't like to talk to each other. Well, she wanted to talk. 
She was 24 years old, a grad student at Virginia Tech, and so she starts asking us about us. So Wendy starts telling her our story, and so of course she rolls through, she rolls through our testimony in about a 10-minute version of it, and Wendy's like, yep, my husband, my first husband, my late husband, police officer, lost his life in the line of duty as he was, he was going down to, to retrieve, to rescue the body of a 10-year-old boy, or however old he was, was swimming. Dave lost his life. She's telling that story. I'm left the mom of three young boys, nine, seven, and three. And of course, you can see her like she's already, what? What's this? And then, of course, and then Todd, my husband now of 22 years, his, his wife, two years after Dave's death, was killed in a car accident, laid in a coma for five weeks. Goodness of God goodness of God. That is the goodness of God. And she, being an unbeliever, jaw hanging open, pardon my abbreviated French, but she goes, wow, that is effed up. And Wendy in the most grand way, she was like, yeah, it is. But the Lord is the great sustainer and he watched us. Through it all. The unbeliever, the one that rejects Jesus cannot understand that that two-year period is an expression of the goodness of God. How? Death, tragic death, death, tragic death. How can you make sense of that being an expression of the goodness of God? Jesus Christ is the good living stone. And the word of God promises you and me this, as we come to him, he will constantly and consistently prove himself over and over and over again that he is good. I don't make that promise to you, the word of God does. If you come to Jesus, you will be in the land of the living and you will see his goodness, is what scripture has to say. I know this. On Wednesday night, we had this prayer station over here with the elders. The elders stood here and we invited anyone. If you want healing, come and we will anoint you and pray over you. The line was long, It lasted longer than time permitted. We closed it. We kept praying for people that kept coming and coming, coming. This is an expression of God's goodness in their weakened state because of what they were dealing with, what they are dealing with. An expression of the goodness of God is them coming, crying desperately to the Lord that he would intervene and that he would act now. If you right now are battling with whatever you're battling with, 
It's very difficult to see these moments of the thorn in the flesh that God provides us from time to time to keep us humble and on our knees before him, weakened in our flesh so that his strength can shine through, providing us with with reminder after reminder that we must constantly and always be coming to him. It may be hard to see the goodness of God in those moments. It may be hard to see that as an expression of God's goodness. But can I just say, I have 20 I have 22 years of God revealing in innumerable ways to me how that experience that I walked through, that Wendy walked through, is an expression of the goodness of God plus everything that has come from it over the last 22 years. There is not a book that can contain the expressions of God's goodness into my life and Wendy's life. The word of God declares it to be true that God is good. And his plea is come to him. Come to him. Taste and see that the Lord is good. If you have not tasted the goodness of God, this is what's going to happen. If you have not tasted, you will not long for him. If you do not long for him, you will not come to him. If you do not come to him, you will ultimately reject him. Today, we're going to see that Peter is providing us with two options. If you don't taste the goodness of the Lord, if you don't taste the goodness of Lord of the Lord, you're ultimately going to reject him. That's one of your options. You're going to see he refers to two or three Old Testament passages, as you can see Peter looking into the past of his people saying he was presented to them and they rejected him. He was presented to them and, and, and they rejected him. That will be the first option that Peter will lay out. He says, learn from my people and do this. Come, come to Jesus, the one who is goodness personified and receive his goodness. As you come to him, verse four says, a living stone rejected by men. You either come to him or you reject to him. So let's read this passage together. First Peter chapter two, verses four through eight. Peter says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling 
and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. I see Peter, I try and envision Peter as he's writing this letter. And as he rolls from verse three to verse four, where, where verse three, he's, he's saying, taste and see that the Lord is good. Long for him. And then I see him thinking through his experience as he knows his people of Israel to be, how they rejected him over and over. The prophet Isaiah is saying, the opportunity is here. It stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Peter is saying, come, learn from my people Israel that rejected him. But ultimately they did not, they rejected him. And for the people of Israel, he became a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. This has application for everyone, whether you are in relationship with the Lord right now, whether you are redeemed, or, or if you are in full relationship with the Lord for him, if you are in full relationship with the Lord right now. If you have yet to come, Jesus continues to be a stone of offense, a rock of stumbling. And for us who are in relationship with him, there are times where we determine we want to do things on our own, that his goodness is not good enough for us, and so we decide, I'm going to do it this way instead of his way, which is ultimately us kicking the stone because we are offended by him, the things that he would ask of us. We kick at it. And he becomes, even as we are in relationship with him, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Peter is saying your two options are either come to him or reject him in his plea is that we would come. So I want to ask you, church, folks that are sitting here, who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to you? Is he the living stone that Peter is talking about, that he is speaking about in this passage, or is he the rock of offense? As you come to him, the living stone, or if you reject to him, the rock of offense is something that you, that we should be wrestling over right now. So I suppose there are some in here that are probably wondering, why would I ever come to this Jesus whom Peter is calling the living stone. What happens if I come to him? Well, there are a handful of things. I want to I use the scripture right now to convince you as to why you should come to him. And then following that, we're going to walk through a couple of things that reason or what happens, what happens if you do reject him. So listen to this. What happens if you come to him? Jesus, here's the first one. Jesus, the living stone is going to become sweeter and sweeter to you. You're going to become like him. This is what happens. You're going to become like him. As you come to him, a living stone, verse four says, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You you yourselves like living stones. So here's not what I'm proposing to you. As you come to this living rock, this living stone, as you come to Jesus, I am not proposing that you become a little God yourself. That's not at all what I'm saying here. 
What I am saying is, as you come to him, you take on the likeness of Jesus Christ. You become like the living stone. And look at what the rest of the verse says. In the sight of God, Jesus, the living stone, was chosen and precious. You yourself like living stone. So as you become like Jesus, as you come into relationship with him, as you receive this rock into your life, you become in the eyes of God chosen and precious. I think about Peter's time with Jesus. I think Peter is probably one of the clearest examples of someone that became like him. And it started, I believe, in Matthew chapter 16, starting at verse 13. When Jesus said to his disciples, he said, hey, who do people say that I am? Who do they say I am? Who's the son of man? And his disciples responded, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say Jeremiah, and still others are saying that he's one of the prophets come back. And Jesus says to them, all right, I hear what others say of him. So church, who do you say that Jesus is? I'm asking you that right now. Peter comes with the answer. Jesus says, who do you say that I am? Not others. And Peter says this. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. He made the right confession. He made the right profession. He recognized who Jesus is. The son of the living God. He is the Christ. He is the one that God sent to redeem us and save us from ourselves. And this is what Jesus says. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. God the Father opened his eyes to be able to see and receive who the person of Jesus is. So Jesus is the rock. You're going to hear in a moment. But he says to Peter, as you have made this confession, I tell you, you are Peter. He names him the rock. And he says, and on, and I tell you, your name is Peter, and on this rock, I will build my house and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Peter has made the confession that Jesus is the rock, the living stone. And Jesus himself says, Peter, you're going to be like me. And so I'm naming you Peter, which is the rock. Peter in that instant becomes chosen and precious in the sight of God through Jesus Christ as he determined by the will of God the Father to declare that Jesus is the Messiah. Chosen and precious. Once redemption hits, once you receive the person of Jesus Christ, once you come to him and he fills you with his Holy Spirit, this is what happens. God the Father then sees you through the person of Jesus Christ who is chosen and precious in the eyes of God, which then makes you chosen and precious in the eyes of God. You become like him. Peter loves Isaiah. He quotes him numerous times, so I'm going to use Isaiah in chapter 43. But now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, God is your creator, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, he is the one that determined you would be who you are, where you are, when you are, gifted as you are, with all of the challenges you face, with all your infirmities, with all your everything, God has determined, I am forming you, I'm making you into who you are, created you. 
and formed you, he says this, fear not for I have redeemed you. I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. You are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you. What an incredible privilege it is for you and me. Identity matters, right? You are a chosen and precious child of God. As you receive the person of Jesus Christ, God the Father now sees you through him and that makes you chosen and precious. Psalm 139, for those of you who have been around for a while, you know that's probably one of my favorite psalms. He says this, King David says this, how precious of God, how precious are your thoughts to me, how vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. And you know I love to do this. Lick your finger, stick it in the sand. How many grains of sand can you count? Probably all of them. Take a handful, becomes a little more challenging. Take a bucket full, even more challenging. Then take a look to your right, take a look to your left, see all of the beach that's, that's before you, behind you, and to your sides, and consider this as one beach on the face of the planet. And King David says, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, I couldn't do it. Because you know so much. Goodness of God. Here it is, goodness of God. And one of those is you. He thinks of you in the vastness of all his thoughts how chosen and precious we are in the eyes of God the Father through Jesus Christ listen to redemption's bonus when you come to Jesus the living stone listen to the bonus behold I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone that's chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. When you are redeemed, when you become chosen and precious in the eyes of the Lord, you come to the place where you accept what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross and it was at the cross where Jesus endured its shame. And now he is alive, seated at the right hand of the throne of God the Father, without shame. Jesus on the cross, full of shame, now without shame. You become like Jesus when you come to him. And God the Father sees you through him, and he removes your shame. And establishes you and gives you new life in him, without shame, before God the Father. Your shame is removed at the moment you are redeemed. Name your shame right now. Shame. What are you most ashamed of in all of your life? Can you name two things? Can you name three things? Maybe some of you are like, yep, 
there's one thing, and it's me in the course of my whole life. Just full of shame. Full of shame. Name your disappointment. Because there are other translations that say shame equals disappointment. How have you been disappointed with life? Here's the promise that God is making to us through Jesus Christ. You are chosen and precious in his eyes. There is not, there, he takes all of your shame, no matter how big and messy it is, and he wipes it away through the cross, and he establishes with you with him alive in Jesus Christ. Name your shame. You become like him. Why would you not want to become like the living stone? As you come to him, he also gives you, or excuse me, he also sets your life straight. He becomes your cornerstone. Peter, once again, he's referring back to Isaiah, for it stands in scripture. Look at verse six. This is, this is Peter referencing Isaiah chapter 28. He says, behold, I am laying in, stone, in, in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. He is a cornerstone. Have you ever thought through, well, if you talk to any mason in the church about what the importance of the cornerstone is, he's going to tell you the entirety of the structure that is going to be built especially if you go back 2,000, 3,000 years, the importance of the cornerstone was so magnificently huge because it determined the direction, it determined the rightness, it determined how it's going to remain stable, it's going to provide straightness, it's going to give direction. You couldn't build a building without it, at least one that you could count to be a sound structure. This is the only way I can, I can liken it today. I was, 20 years ago or so, I was, I was working construction. I was working for a guy in Grand Rapids. We were building this house that was like 16,000 square feet and had many, many what they called elevations, so levels. Not just floors, but levels. Many, many, many. And there's this massive oak tree that was in, next to the driveway. And that's where we would sit and take break. And in it, there was a, there was a nail sticking at the base of this tree. And I said, hey, I said to the, uh, the crew supervisor, I said, explain that to me. He said, well, that is 700 and whatever feet above sea level. I said, okay. And he said, every elevation of that house is dependent on that nail, every single one. So imagine now, if every elevation has been determined by that nail, let's say, let's say that it took 30 years to build that house and that tree grows and the nail moves even a fraction of an inch. It throws off elevations as you move through the construction project. Extremely critical, right? The drawing says it needs to be this. Well, that nail has moved even a fraction of an inch and it changes everything about the elevations that are throughout the course of that house. That's not Jesus. Jesus is the living stone. He is the cornerstone that is firmly established, never changing, always directing, perfect in absolutely every way and scenario of life. Now, 
if life isn't hard enough with the stuff that we currently deal with, that the world just brings to you, what happens when you determine I don't want to trust in the sufficiency of that cornerstone? Now I'm going to decide on my own based on my limited understanding of life that is determined by my own experience. Instead of the one who has an eternity-sized bucket full of his thoughts, knowing everything, the cornerstone, I'm going to decide to make decisions on my own. How does that go for you? Every choice I've made apart from Jesus Christ, the cornerstone directing it or determining it for me, proves to be a disaster. It absolutely does. It proves to be a disaster because I am responding to life in my flesh that is weak instead of following the lead of the Holy Spirit, which he knows everything. I make a disaster of my life. Jesus is fixed, he is unchangeable, he is dependable. I think about Peter as he's thinking about his people, Israel. Over and over and over again, God proved himself to them and they constantly and consistently rejected him, rejected him, rejected him, rejected him until he became such an offense to them that they would grind their teeth at him and kick at him. You go back to when Israel was young, a young nation, They were not satisfied with the lordship of God Almighty in their lives. And they said, make us like everybody else. Thinking in the flesh, make us like everybody else. We want a king. And God's standing there saying, I am your king. And they're like, we're not satisfied with you as our king. Give us a king. And that became, or that began, the mess that became of Israel starting that moment when they said, no, we want someone else. Made a decision in the flesh, they rejected him. What a mess Israel became in that moment. Where do you turn when life becomes confusing? Where do you turn when you need your direction to be set straight? Proverbs 3 Five and six, we're told to trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Your own understanding is your flesh determining which way I should go. In all your ways, acknowledge him. Determine the living stone is determining for me. The cornerstone is determining for me the direction I am to go. I need to trust in him, not lean on my own understanding, acknowledge God in all my ways and what happens He will make your paths straight. He will set you straight. When you come, when you come to the living stone, he sets your life straight. Let's keep moving. As you come to Jesus, as you come to the living stone, as you come to the cornerstone, you come to belong. You yourselves, look at five. You are all of a sudden given the most extravagant and eternally awesome identity ever. Verse five says, you yourselves, like living stones, as you take on the likeness of Christ, you are being built up 
as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, a spiritual house. Here's what that means. You are now eternally marked and sealed and forever in his eternal kingdom. We learned last week that you and I are nothing like grass in the field. Scripture also refers to us, our lives are nothing but a vapor. Gone in a moment. That's our existence here in the flesh. But you are becoming a spiritual house as you are in relationship with Jesus Christ. Which will live forever and ever and ever. You are eternal, a spiritual house. You become a, heart, a part of a holy priesthood. And I, I, I hear when, when Peter writes that, if, if, there's a, if there's a Jew sitting there listening to this, you become a holy priesthood, Gentile, you and me. If you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. We become a holy priesthood. And if I'm a Jew, I'm like, wait a minute. Wait a minute, wait a minute. That's only reserved for a specific type of person that bears the, la- the, the family lineage of Levi. The only way you can be a priest unto God is to be born into Levi, one of the 12 tribes. There's no other way. It is, that privilege is reserved for them alone. Didn't make sense to them. Didn't make sense to them. But to you and I, the moment we come into relationship with the person of Jesus Christ, you are determined to be a holy priest for him in his spiritual house. What an incredible privilege. Identity certainly matters, doesn't it? There's no better identity than to be a part of his eternal kingdom and to be declared one of his priests. This is important to understand. If you look back at that verse, you yourselves like living stones, yes, you're a spiritual house, but you are also a holy priesthood, to be a holy priesthood. But you are like living stones are being built up. You're being built up as a spiritual house. What does that mean? So what's my involvement in that? Well, here's part of the problem. You and I spend ourselves trying to build ourselves up into the spiritual house. But there's only one that can do it. We bear no responsibility in the building up. That's entirely of God himself. Listen to how Paul says it in Philippians. Um, Philippians chapter two, verse 13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The only way God gets his pleasure through you is when you humble yourself before him and you permit, you permit him to will and to work in your life. That's the only way he gets his good pleasure. And as he gets his good pleasure in you, as you submit yourself to him, as you humble yourself before him, the only way is as he wills and works in your life. And when he gets his good pleasure, man, we are being built up into the most incredible, everlasting, eternal, spiritual house. So let me ask you a question. How are you guilty of doing God's work? Think personally. I'll think personally. If I just do this, 
I know I must do that, so if I try really, really hard, if I, if I, if I keep working and working and working, if I spend myself, if I strive, if I strive, if I strive, think within the body. Spiritual house, yes, you are a piece of the spiritual house that's being developed and determined by the cornerstone we are being built up together. How is it that you respond to others? You see your responsibility. All right, I want to be a part of the, con- the construction process of this incredible building. Yet this person, yet that person, yet he, yet she, yet my wife, yet my husband, yet my kids, yet my on and on the list goes, and we start wearing ourselves out, playing the role of the Holy Spirit in the lives of others. Yes, we are called to hold each other accountable. Yes, we are to declare the word of God to one another. But it's the Holy Spirit of God that works in the heart of those that he brings into our lives. Humility is a big deal. It's a big piece of this. So you should be asking yourself the question, as you are together being built up with others, the hardships they bring into your life, the question begins to come, Lord, Lord, you're clearly using this in my life to humble me. Where is it in my life? that I find myself striving and pretending to be the Holy Spirit? Where is it in my life that I actually have things that I need to lay before you that are an offense to you? How are you guilty of trying to do God's work? This is tied so closely to it. As you belong to this incredible spiritual house, as you have been determined to be a holy priesthood, you're also given the most incredible purpose. Look at verse five again. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as what? A spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. For what purpose? To offer spiritual sacrifices that are what? Acceptable to God, that are pleasing to God. Through who? Jesus Christ. The desires of your flesh are contrary to what God has for you. The desires of the Spirit are what God has for you. Let's put this in the most simplest of terms. What is it that makes my service to God, my spiritual act of worship, as Paul says it in Romans chapter 12, How is it then that I can offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God because I know I can only do it through the person of Jesus Christ? Okay, how do I do that? Let's let's put it in the the simplest of terms. When I love myself, I am serving myself and I am rejecting the living stone. When I serve God... I am serving God through the person of Jesus Christ and everything I do is pleasing to God the Father when it's done through Jesus Christ. So let's sum it up in this. How about the, the greatest commandment? I want you to do this, God says. This is how you'll get, this is how I will have my good pleasure in you. When you are determined to love me with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, and with all your strength. Okay, so what does that mean? That means your desire is to please him before you please yourself. That, that means 
That means you are determined. I love God so much, I am less concerned about me and more concerned about him. Less concerned about me and more concerned about him. You know what I could do every Sunday? I could forget what God wants and I could simply pray, God, when I come to stressful moments, which, which is every Sunday I stand behind the pulpit, Lord, just take away my heart palpitations. Take away my heart skipping beats because it weakens me and I'm not strong enough to stand before your church and declare, so take care of me, take care of me, take care of me. That's not loving God, that's loving me first. It should be, God, I want you to get your good pleasure through your church. In my weakened flesh, Lord, use my tongue for your glory and not for mine. God gets his good pleasure when, he love him, when we love him before we love ourselves. And what's the second commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and who love your neighbor as yourself. You are the most insignificant person in your life. God is the most significant. Everyone else in your life is more significant because you must look at them in this way. Either that person is chosen by God, precious in his sight, and I am in that individual's life to see them become more and more and more like Jesus, discipleship, You see them like that, or you see them as lost and bound for eternal separation from God in a place called hell, which is eternally misery, eternally miserable. Love the Lord your God, him first. Love others that are around you. Them second, and then you third. Love God first, Love others second. Don't worry about yourself because as God gets, it, God gets his pleasure in you as you serve him in his spiritual house as a holy priest, he's going to get his good pleasure in you as you offer your spiritual sacrifice, which means I'm gonna love God first, I'm gonna love others second, and I'm not gonna care about me. God gets his good pleasure when we respond like that. Matthew chapter seven says this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. That's the one. That's the one who is doing God's will. Or that's the one that will enter the kingdom of heaven, the one that's doing God's will. On that day, many will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not try and fix our spouse? Did we not try and fix our kids? On that day, Many will say, we prophesied in your name and we cast out demons in your name and and we did many mighty works in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Our flesh is so corrupt and so mixed up. All we want to do is serve it. But God is calling us to make spiritual sacrifices if we are serving ourselves, even in the life of the body. If it is not true and everlasting and meaningful Christ-centric worship, it is false. It is false, and God is not getting his pleasure out of us. And the day will come where he'll say, look, I didn't know you. You were serving you, not me. How are you guilty of striving, saying just hard enough? You are chosen and precious. Come to the living rock and prove that you are chosen and precious. He has given you the most 
tremendous identity that he would even think of you and bring you into relationship with himself through his son. We are given the most valuable treasure as we are in relationship with him. I can't find any reason not to come to Jesus. I can't. But there are those that do. So my admonition to you, my plea, is come to Jesus. But here's what happens if you reject him. Look at verses seven and eight. But for those who do not believe, let me just say this. If you don't believe, you stand already as an enemy of the most holy God. For those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected, Israel, has become the cornerstone to those who believe. Verse 8. Rejected, rejected, rejected. And as a result of their rejecting, verse 8 says, and, and Jesus himself became a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word. They refuse to believe as they were destined to do. Think about what a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense means. When you reject him, all you do is kick and kick and kick and stumble over this rock of offense, bloodying your feet and your shins. And the more that happens, the more you can't stand the person of Jesus Christ because he is causing you great pain in your life. Come to Jesus and be chosen and precious. I think about Peter's reflection on Israel rejecting it. I think of his time with Jesus when he watched Jesus trying to convince the Jews, his own people, to receive him and accept who he is, yet they rejected him. I think about the time at Pentecost where Peter preaches the gospel message and calls people to repent of the one they put on the cross, and they did. They did. 3,000 souls gave their lives to God. They came in and became chosen and precious before God. And then I'm sure Peter is thinking about the time that Stephen... Another apostle declared the exact same message and they ground their teeth at the message because they were so offended by it. So offended by it. They ground their teeth at him and they rejected him and they stoned Stephen to death. What will it be for you? What will it be for you The longer you resist, the more offensive he becomes. Jesus is the rock of offense, becomes more and more offensive the more you reject him. So what will it be for you? Are you gonna come to him and see yourself before God as being chosen chosen and precious in his sight? Demands a response, doesn't it? If you have yet to come, it is our plea at Summit Church for you to come. All right? That's for those that stand on the outside and Jesus is still a rock of offense. All right? Now, for those of us that are already in relationship with God through Jesus Christ, he can still be a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to you and me. Can he? Because even though we are Holy Spirit-filled, we're still tied to our flesh. 
And yes, we want to we wanna serve and follow the leading of the Holy Spirit, but our flesh says, nope, over here is something I want. I reject that for just a moment, and I'm going to kick the stone of offense, and I'm going to hurt myself on it. And Jesus is reminding you, like, this is my discipline. This is my discipline. Don't kick me. Don't kick me. Come on now. See and know who I am. The cornerstone all of a sudden becomes the thing you bludgeon your foot on because you want to do things your way. Even as we are in relationship with the person of Jesus Christ, he can still be offensive to us. That's where it's called. That calls you and me to a place of repentance, that we would humble ourselves before him, that we would receive his discipline, that he would let, we would let him heal our bloodied foot and shin as we determine to try and do things our way. Brothers and sisters in Christ, may we continue to grow in our relationship with him, so much so that we understand the significance of accepting him as the living stone, the great provider in absolutely everything. We have everything we need in him from now until forevermore. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word. Lord, as you, as you declare to us in First Peter chapter 2, May we be found coming to you. I pray for the heart and the soul of the individual that has yet to come to you. Lord, may, may the offense stop. May they see you as the place to come, to be alive, to be, to be considered chosen and precious. The one who will wipe away at the, at the moment of redemption all shame, all sin. And then for those of us, Lord, who are in relationship with you, thank you and, and we thank you and praise you for your constant goodness as you reveal yourself to us faithful over and over and over again. May we learn from your discipline and may you do a mighty work in our lives and may your kingdom come and your will be done. In Jesus' name, amen.